All right, so listen as I read, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not be able to see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and another left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your inerrant word that is the, the truth, that is the light to our path. And we know that the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word endures forever. And so we pray that this word that we read here would be planted in our hearts, uh, that we would be able to draw on it this week and in the future in our lives, that it would make a practical and real difference to your spirit. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have studied theology or you're like Jonathan, who's in seminary, uh, you, you, you may have heard the word eschatology. Um, we always laugh uh, where Jonathan's in school at Westminster that, you know, that they just use the word eschatological in almost every single lecture. At some point, you, you could keep a little track on your notebook. Oh, they said eschatology at some point. Um, and really the, the word, if, if you don't know the word eschatology, comes from the word eschatos, which means last, or the word logos, which means word or study. And so eschatology is really the, the study of last things, the, the study of, 
the end. And when it comes to eschatology, uh, Christians have made two big mistakes over the ages. And so the one mistake that Christians have made is they become hyper-obsessed with all of the details of the end and of eschatology, and that's all they ever focus on and all they ever talk about. Uh, the other danger is that we completely ignore the question, and we think that it doesn't matter and we never talk about it. And of course, as I say, I, I, I really this is something I should, I should keep track of, is how many times I say, this is why we preach through books of the Bible, <laughs> Uh, because really that is true. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, that it, every passage of the scripture does not necessarily talk directly about eschatology, about the end. But when it does come up, we believe that it's important, that the, the Spirit is saying something to us that we need to pay attention to from his word. And so today, as we work our way, and we're going to go verse by verse through this passage, so you can leave your, your Bible open as we work through it, but you'll notice that, that Jesus is really answering three questions about the end, about eschatology. So the first is, when will the kingdom come? The second is, what will the kingdom be like? And then the third question is, how can we be ready for the kingdom when it comes? And so it's when, what, and how. So let's start with that, that first question, when will the kingdom come? And you'll notice that that's the question that the Pharisees were asking in verse 20. It says that being asked by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. And so the, the Pharisees, they had a, an eschatology. They had a view of what the future was going to hold. And they believed that, that really there would, there would come a future time when the Messiah would come and he would kick out the Romans and establish the kingdom and, and justice forever, that the kingdom for them was this entirely future reality. Uh, and so they basically say to Jesus, tell us when this is going to happen. Give us your view of the eschatological kingdom, Jesus. That's essentially their question. But Jesus, as he loves to do, just takes what they're thinking and just completely turns it upside down, completely challenges all of their theological assumptions. And the way that he does that is, is really surprising, and especially if you're working from the perspective of the Pharisees, because what Jesus unfolds for us here in this text is that if you say, well, when will the kingdom come? Well, Jesus says that the kingdom is already, it's already here, and the kingdom is not yet here, that the kingdom is still future. And that's the essence of his answer about when the kingdom will arrive. And notice how in verse 20 he, he shows us the already, that they say, when is it going to come? And he's going to say, it's here. Look at verse 20. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so Jesus is saying that, that his coming, that the coming of the kingdom, the rule of the Messiah in the world, it can't be observed. And that doesn't mean that there, that there was nothing happening, that there was no visible action, but it didn't fit the categories of, of human wisdom and human strength and, and human power. It wasn't something that you could put in a, in a laboratory and, and repeat and poke and, and prod that he, he's saying that, no, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
And that phrase, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, is, is difficult to, to translate um, and probably even harder to fully understand what it means. Um, and there are some older translations that, that actually translate it, the kingdom of God is within you. And that is, it can definitely be translated that way. Uh, but as translators have, have wrestled with how to, how to translate it, uh, they're thinking, well, these are the, the Pharisees. Do they have the, the kingdom of God within them? And so most translations take it as being the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's, it's, it's here. And I think that that's right because really Jesus himself as the Messiah is the embodiment of the kingdom. That, that the, the kingdom of God was in their very midst because they were talking to Jesus, the king, of the kingdom. And so, so they, they're not just wondering, okay, when someday will the kingdom arrive? But he says, no, it's here right now. But it wasn't what they expected because the kingdom was coming in this uh, Judean peasant. Um, it, was, it was coming in, in somebody who, who didn't fit the categories. It wasn't wealthy and, and powerful and, and was, wasn't strong according to human reckoning. And, and a king who would one day uh, be killed on a Roman cross. It wasn't what they thought the, the kingdom would be like, what the kingdom would bring. And so, not surprisingly, they rejected his kingdom. They said that we're not going to accept Jesus as the king because it doesn't fit our categories of what it should look like. And I think that this is also the reason that, that many today reject Christ as well. I mean, it, it may not be with the exact same reasoning as the Pharisees, but I think that, that sometimes people will read the Bible and they'll see that it, it, what it claims about Jesus, that Jesus was the Son of God, that, that he came into the world, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again from the dead, that the, the cross and the resurrection meant God's victory over sin and death and hope coming into the world. But then... They say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. And think of all of the human suffering and human misery that has been in the world since that supposed victory over sin and death. And if Jesus was so great, why didn't more people believe in him? And if the kingdom really meant the, the conquering of sin and death, and if the cross really did anything, why do we see so much sin, so much death, so much suffering in the world? I mean, you could even put it in, in saying, that if, if the cross really accomplished something, why do we have the Holocaust? Why did we have genocide in the world so many times? And I think that that's a, that's a good question, and it's one that we have to confront as we look at the, the New Testament. And it might be helpful, actually, to think of an analogy here where uh, imagine that you bring um, the exterminator into your house because you have a, a bug infestation. Uh, and he, he works for a few hours, and then he comes to you and says, I've destroyed the bug problem in your house. Uh, the, the bugs in your house are defeated. But then you see a, a bug just kind of scurry across your carpet. And then you say, hey, I just saw a bug moving right there. And you say that the bugs have been defeated. Um, I'm not going to pay you until all of the bugs are dead. Uh, because that's why I brought you here. But the, the bug man, the exterminator, could say, well, no, I have applied a chemical that's safe to human beings, but 
it will take care of all of the bugs in your home. They're going to be completely gone. You're never going to see a bug again, but it's just going to take a little bit of time before the full reality of that comes. Of course, then you might, you might wait. But of course, then it happens that, that, that you ha there, there's this time between when the chemicals are applied and when all of the bugs are gone. But still, that you could, you could say truly that there has been a decisive defeat. The death blow has been given to the, to the bugs in the house. And that's really the way that we can think about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, that, that he did defeat sin and death on the cross. And that's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So you can see what the author to the Hebrews is saying. He's saying that Christ destroyed death through death. That, that, that he is, he's disarmed Satan. He's disarmed the, the power of evil. And so in that sense, we can really say that the kingdom of God is already, that the sins of God's people have already been nailed to the cross, buried in the tomb. That he has already taken away the sting of death by rising again from the dead and promising that anyone who is in him through faith will also have resurrection on the last day. That he has already given us hope for this life and for the, the life to come. And so we can say that, that the kingdom of God... The, the power of God at work in the world, the rule and the reign of Christ in our lives, it's not just a past reality of, well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked the earth, but now the kingdom is gone. And it's not just a future reality where we say, oh, someday he'll return in glory to judge the living and the dead. But what we see here is that it's a present reality, that, that Jesus says the kingdom is in the midst of you. And even for us, when we don't have Jesus physically present with us, that he is present with us through his spirit. And that's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so, you know, we were talking about, is it the kingdom of God is within you or the kingdom of God is in your midst? But in that sense, the kingdom of God is within believers, that the Spirit is dwelling in us to give us hope and, and life and, and strength. And, and that's what it means to be born again, that the, the Spirit comes. And, and what you could think of is, is being born again to a living hope through Christ is kind of this in-time reality of resurrection life being poured into the presence where we're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life as we look forward to, then to the final restoration of our bodies, that, that it's, it's a sense of the kingdom coming in a way that's out of sight in the here and now. And then that kingdom, that rule, continues to be established in our lives through the lordship of Jesus. As, 
as we learn more and more what it is to die to sin and to live to Christ and to, to conform all that we are to, to Jesus, that, that it's, it's the, the rule of God being brought to bear in our lives. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer we say, Thy kingdom come. That what we're praying is, yes, the kingdom come in the future, but also your kingdom, your rule, the rule of Jesus, rule in my life now and everything that I am and everything that I do, that I would know the kingdom is within me that the kingdom is here present in my midst through the Spirit working in the Word of God. And theologians, though, call that a, a partially realized eschatology. And that's really just a, a fancy way of, of saying that, 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 again, that future reality of the kingdom is partially here, that eschatology isn't just about the future. And that's actually what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5. He calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's looking to the past, and he says, as well as a partaker in the present, in the glory that is going to be revealed uh, in the future. And so then he, you know, he's situating himself in the moment as this partaker, present partaker in the future glory that's going to be revealed. And that's the same for us as well, that, that we here today, by the Spirit, working in the Word of God, are partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. But of course, as there often is with anything, there's, there's a danger here. Uh, and the danger, if we're using our big theological words, is what they call an over-realized eschatology. Um, and let me just, it's probably easier just to give some examples than to define what that means um, that that what, what an over-realized eschatology would be is, is something like the, the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel basically says that if you really have faith, that you're going to have health and wealth and prosperity in this life, that your life will be great and free of suffering uh, if you really, really believe in Jesus. And of course, in a way that's true, that ultimately through faith in Christ, we are going to be free from all suffering. We are going to be free from all sickness. That, that the promise is complete restoration of all things. But what it does is it actually takes the, the final reality and kind of says, oh, actually, you can have that final reality now. And if you're not experiencing you know, health and wealth and joy and happiness and perfect life in every way, that, you, that something's wrong with you, you're not doing something. It's an over-realized eschatology. Here's another one. Uh, that would be an over-realized eschatology uh, is what's called the, the social gospel. And the social gospel essentially says that, that the, the, the gospel is primarily about serving the poor, ending injustice in the world. And again, we care about injustice. We are called to fight it. We are called to, to serve the poor. But, but there can be this sense of, okay, if we, if we really get our act together, we'll be able to end all poverty, all oppression, that we can solve all of the problems in the here and now. But the problem is that there, there's still sin in the human heart, that the, the root of the problem is, is still there. And so if we just try to fix kind of external circumstances, it, it's going to try to bring the final reality now, but it, it doesn't work. Or here's another example. Uh, it would be Christian perfectionism. Because there are some Christians that say that, that essentially in this life you can become morally perfect. 
uh, that if you just read your Bible enough, you pray enough, eventually you can get to the place where you never, ever sin again to the moment of your death. And again, we, we are striving to see victory over sin in our life, and the Spirit promises to help us to, to gain victory over patterns of sin. But it's an over-realized eschatology to say that, that in this life we can become morally perfect, that that's something that we're still looking for in the future. And the last example of the, the danger of this um, is in the realm of politics. Um, and it's connected, I guess, to the others as well. But where, where we fix so much hope in a particular politician or a political, per, per, particular political party, and we say, you know, if, if my person gets elected or if my person stays in office, then everything will be great. The world will be perfect. That, that essentially I can bring the reality of the final kingdom here and now through politics if I just pay attention enough and care enough and make sure that my voice is, is loud enough. But of course, this is where we have to remember that, that we root our ultimate hope, not just in the already, but actually in the not yet kingdom. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 22. Uh, he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. And really there, Jesus is warning us against that over-realized eschatology. He's saying that you'll know when the second coming happens. So if somebody's claiming to be Jesus now, in this present age, don't pay attention, don't listen to it. And then he continues, verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so there you see what he's saying is that the, the already reality of the kingdom was going to be missed was going to be neglected by so many of his time that he was going to be rejected and, and crucified and he would suffer. But he's saying that the, the not yet reality, when Jesus comes again in glory, that he says it's going to be like lightning flashing in the sky and that, that that's the way the Son of Man will be when he returns. That is not something that can be missed. That if we ever think that, wonder if the second coming has happened, if we're asking that question, it has not happened yet. Uh, that we will know when it arrives. And then ultimately, that is where we are to, to stake our hope, um, to, to put our true confidence is in the future kingdom that is yet to come. Because we see death in this world, but in that day, Christ will put a final end to death. That we see sin in the world, but in that day, he will put a final end to sin. That we see injustice in the world, but in that day, Christ will put a final end to all injustice. And so today, if you're here or watching and you say, my life is great. Well, this is saying, don't stake your ultimate hope here because this is fragile. This is going to pass away. And if you are looking at your life and saying, my life is hard, my life is terrible right now. This is saying, don't lose hope, because if you're in Christ, 
the better things are always yet to come, that we have a hope of a, of a kingdom that is coming that will put an end to all sorrow and, and suffering and pain. And again, that is where we stake our hope. And that's the, the first question that we see here in the text, that when will the kingdom arrive, that it's already and not yet? But then here's the, the second question that, that Jesus begins to address. And it's, what will the kingdom be like? So it's already not yet, but how can we describe it? How can we understand what it's like? Look at verse 26. Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And so Jesus is saying that this, this future coming of the kingdom is going to be like the days of Noah. And you probably know the story of Noah from um, even when you were a child. It's in lots of children's Bibles that the, the world was living for itself in complete rebellion against God. And that God told them that he was going to send a flood to destroy the world. And he told Noah to build an ark and he told Noah and his family to take refuge in the ark as the, the waters of the flood came. But that people didn't see it. They didn't recognize it. That, that the people who didn't enter the ark were just living their lives. Uh, they were marrying. They were giving, being given in marriage. They were eating and drinking. They were planning for the future. They had their retirement plans. They had all of their grand vision for their life. And it was cut short by the judgment of God. And that it's the same for us today, that, that we're constantly being told by different people of oh, all kinds of dangers in the future, that, that we hear about climate change, or, or the health experts warn us about COVID-19, or economists warn us about China. But what the, what the Bible is warning us about ultimately is a coming day of judgment that will crash into the world in the same way that the flood crashed into the world in the days of Noah when people least expected it. And that day was this terrifying day of judgment, but also this glorious day of salvation for God's people. And of course, today, as we hear that, we're tempted to live for ourselves, to, to live focused almost exclusively on this life, thinking that the here and now is all that it matters. But again, we remember the generation of Noah, that it will be like the days of Noah. But then Jesus gives us another Old Testament illustration. He says that it's also going to be like the days of Lot. Look at verse 27. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And so you can see what Jesus is saying, that he's drawing this analogy. He says, you want to know what the, the coming kingdom is going to be like? It's going to be like God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, they were, their economy was, was functioning well. It says they were buying and selling, planting and building. They, they were living their lives with no thought to God or eternity or salvation or what God actually wanted from their lives. But then it says that the fire and sulfur came from heaven, that God brought judgment down. 
And of course, we need to learn that same lesson from them to, to wake up from spiritual sleep and to, to acknowledge reality of who is God. What does God actually require of us? How can we be brought into a relationship with God? And, and really all of that comes together for the, the third and the final question that we see here in our text. So we've looked at when the kingdom will come, that it's already not yet. We've said what it will be like, that it's like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. But then finally here, how can we be ready for the kingdom when it comes? Look at verse 31. Jesus continues, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And you see that phrase, remember Lot's wife. If you go back and you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, uh, the angels came and warned Lot to flee from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah even after Abraham had interceded for the city, if there was even one righteous person that God would spare the city. But then as Lot fled with his family, uh, it says that his wife turned back, looked at the city, uh, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. And you can speculate then, well, why, why did she look back? Why did that result in judgment on her? We don't know exactly but I think Jesus gives us a hint in verse 33. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And that when Lot's wife looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, it's not that she was just trying to save her physical life, but in a way I think she was trying to save her way of life, that what she was really desiring was to be able to have God's judgment not come and just to return and live her life exactly the way that she was before. But that wasn't an option. And I think that it's the same for us today, that, that we're called to, to flee the, the city of destruction to the celestial city, using the language of Pilgrim's Progress. And, and that as we do that, there can be this sense of, yes, we're, we're striving forward toward Christ, but then we kind of look back at our, our former life before Christ and we say, well, maybe that's better. Maybe I'd, I would rather have my way of life apart from all the, the sacrifice that it, it brings to really follow God. And that's why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Uh, to remember not to fix our hope and our confidence in the here and now, in, in this, this life, this age, but saying, no, fix your hope and your confidence in the life to come. Keep your eyes there. But look at else what, Jesus, look what else Jesus says in verse 34. He says, I tell you, in that day there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Now, some Christians think that, that this verse there is, is talking about the, the rapture. Uh, and the, probably that, that idea of the, the rapture was popularized by a series of books called the Left Behind series. Um, and, and the idea of it is that 
people are going about their businesses, and then all of a sudden people just start disappearing. But society is kind of going on like, like normal, and, it, and it's leading up to the final end when believers are raptured out from the world. Now, that's a whole other discussion. We could get into the details of views of eschatology. Um, I personally don't believe that that kind of a picture of the end is is biblical. Um, I don't. That's not the way I understand the idea of the rapture. That that I think what what is being described here is really that the image of the final judgment when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. That that the picture is that there's going to be this dividing of the the sheep and the goats. That there's going to be this this decisive moment where there's going to be no reason to go down and get what's in your house, that, that the time of separation has come. But really, no matter what somebody's view of the end times is or view of the rapture, that the application is actually the same from this verse, that, that the application is to expect the day of judgment to come in one form or another. And then ultimately to ask the question, am I ready for that day when it comes? Am I going to be taken or left. If the, the final installment of the, the kingdom crashes into the world today or this afternoon, where are we in our relationship with God? And then ultimately, how can we be ready for the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness? And as we wrap up, look just at the, the final verse, this, this cryptic verse. It says, and they will say to him, and so the disciples say to Jesus, where, O Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And of course, ultimately, Jesus himself became a corpse on the cross, that he, he died, was buried in the tomb, that, that the, the vultures of the world, of the powers of evil, of Satan, circled the place where the corpse was of our Lord Jesus, thinking that they had victory, that the kingdom of God had failed but actually, in the very place where the corpse was, there is where the, the kingdom came and where, the, where sin and death was, was conquered, where the death blow was delivered. And so the promise then for us is that when we repent of our sins and we, we trust in, in Christ, that, it, that it's fleeing into the Lord Jesus as the ark from the flood of God's judgment, that it's fleeing into to Jesus as the mountain of safety in the, the day of, of Lot as the fire comes down and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's fleeing to Christ as the only stable place. And we flee to him because ultimately he is the one who took the judgment in our place so that we can have life, so that we can live in the, the already reality of the kingdom, looking and staking our hopes and in the not yet reality of the kingdom yet to come. Let's pray.